What a picture, not just of different languages that probably none of us understand, uh, unless you have the gift of interpretation, which is legitimate and still alive today. Would it be a beautiful thing if y'all were like, she was speaking a different language, but I totally understood it. What a beautiful thing that would be. Uh, But what a great picture of heaven. Uh, Revelation paints this picture of every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping Jesus. Uh, And in Acts chapter 2, what we find is this great reversal of Genesis 10. Genesis 10 was this Tower of Babel, and all of humanity had come together, and they started to make great things for themselves, such as a tower that would reach into the heavens. And so God scattered the nations. He gave them different languages and separated them. And all of a sudden, Acts chapter 2, what we see is this fulfillment of this promise of the Holy Spirit coming. And the way that he would manifest himself for these people at this time was to speak in the different languages of the different nations who were all there in Jerusalem gathering for a Jewish festival, the Feast of Weeks. And all of a sudden, with as many people that were coming into Jerusalem for Passover, they had now returned 50 days later for a second festival, whereas Passover uh, was fulfilled by Jesus in his death on the cross. Now this Feast of Weeks was fulfilled in Jesus by his sending of his Spirit bringing the nations together, preaching the gospel in their own language so they would have opportunity to repent. So they would have opportunity to believe in the good news, to be baptized, to be identified with the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful picture today is. So happy birthday, y'all. It's the birth of the church, Pentecost. That's what Pentecost Sunday is all about. If not for today on the Christian calendar, some 1,985 or so years ago, you wouldn't have the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't have the power that raises Jesus from the dead inside of you. But more than that, and in all of that, you would have no power to obey him. None. It would be the most frustrating faith in the world if we did not have the Holy Spirit to obey Jesus. He is the one that indwells all believers to obey the things that Jesus said to do, which are, by the way, just about impossible, at least without the Spirit. And so it's today that we celebrate that. I pray we're celebrating that in our hearts. I know that we're sometimes not as celebratory on the outside as we are on the inside. I understand I'm an introvert too, but I pray that we are celebrating this beautiful truth today. What you just read, what you just heard, is the summary of one of the most powerful chapters in the Bible. Acts chapter 2, from beginning to truly almost to the end. And we'll pick up the end here in a few minutes. But it's Acts chapter 2, the historical record of Pentecost. And though Jesus' power had been displayed on the cross, it had yet to be disseminated to his people until Pentecost. And so even Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. One of the greatest verses for us to live by, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You have no power unless the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It is future even in Acts chapter 1. And so here we are, Acts chapter 2. And the future is now on Pentecost. It's almost 2,000 years ago, the world forever changed with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, before he left the earth, this great command that he gave to his disciples has now been echoed throughout the years for us is the Great Commission. You guys know what the Great Commission is? All right, I've got two people nodding at me. The rest of you are denying any eye contact whatsoever. 
Here's what we know about the Great Commission. Uh, Barna, who is kind of the gallop of the Christian world, he came out with a recent study. And their study would say among American churchgoers, only 51% of us, actually 51% of us don't know it at all. When I say the Great Commission, it's just a blank screen inside your brain. 51% of the room. When I say Great Commission, you're like, that sounds good. I've heard the words Great Commission. Actually, those, uh, besides 51%, 25% of us probably know what the Great Commission is, but we can't recite it. We don't really know its meaning, and yet only 17% of us can know and recite the Great Commission. It is probably one of the more quoted verses in this church, and so I'll quote it again. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And as you do that, teaching them to observe or obey all the commands that I've given you. And behold, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. That is the great commission. That is the great command that Jesus gave to his disciples and therefore has given to us, and yet we have no power to obey it unless the Holy Spirit comes. And so 50 days later, after the resurrection, we find this Holy Spirit now empowering us and making good on the promise, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the promise, and that's the fulfillment here at Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit truly is in us. You believe that today? My prayer is that we would not just believe it and just kind of give intellectual affirmation to these things, but we would truly, our lives would demonstrate the power that's been given to us in Christ Jesus. So this, this, this great commission, it's, it's not optional. It's not something that we need to go pray about, right? It's not something that we need to go, well, let me see if I'm going to do that today. It's something that is a command for all of us to obey. And the only reaction, the only thing that would would drive us to want to obey this are those that have received the grace, the love, and the affection and mercy of the living God who created all things. See, those are the ones that we we know he's a consuming fire, could burn us up, but chooses not to. It's those that believe that he has the power to move mountains, and yet those that he has promised to have unfailing and steadfast love. It's those that believe those things. Those are the ones that will respond with such grace, such love, such affection, and actually go out and try and make a disciple or two in this world. This great theologian named Leslie Newbigin, I probably butchered that. I'll get corrected, I'm sure. But he said this in a, in a book called The Gospel in a Pluralistic, Pluralistic Society. Mission, that's what we're called to be, that we are empowered for more, that we are empowered for mission. Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout, which is not lethal, but life-giving. See, there's one thing the Holy Spirit came to do first. Before we get our theology right, before we get our lives right, before we kind of get over the sins in our own hearts, is this empowerment for more. The first thing that he empowered us for is mission. The first thing that he empowered us for is to actually 
be on mission wherever we go. And it comes out of this, out of this explosion of joy that it gets blown up in our hearts that all of a sudden we just, we, we cannot hold it in. Those that we love, all of a sudden those that we love, we can talk about. Those that have changed our lives, we talk about those people, don't we? We have no problem talking about how our kids have changed our lives for better or for worse. Whether it be a party or whether when we came in here, surely this Jesus who rose from the dead and therefore resurrected our hearts should come up. So do we see this in our normal rhythms? Do we see that, normal, that quote right there in our normal rhythms? Is there a joy that is bursting in how we eat together? How we listen to one another? How we celebrate? How we rest? We find rest in Christ and how we bless his name and bless others because we are blessed. Do we see this in our normal rhythms, this explosion of joy? Or have we forgotten what he's truly done? Have we pushed aside what he has done? Or do we need to go back to that that great hymn that was rearranged for us, that in tenderness he sought us. We were weary and sick with sin. And on his shoulders, he brought me back into his fold again. Oh, the love that sought me, the blood that bought me. Do we need to go back to that over and over and over again? Daily do we rehearse these things to our own hearts. He died for me while I was sinning, rebelling against this good and gracious gracious creator. And yet he whispered to assure me, I have found you and you are mine. Oh, what grace. Be reminded of that so that we may burst with joy to be out on mission So my fear is that we have gone from a people that are out on mission as the church, not just our church, but as the church, American church, European church, Asian church, the church, mainly American church though, that we have gone out from a a people that are on mission to a place that teaches morality. That when we go to church, we expect to hear not the good news of the gospel, but how we can take bits and pieces of what Jesus had to say and make our lives better. And that we rearrange that, that what Jesus truly came to, came to give us, which was abundant life, and we go, oh, well, then how do we make life work better? We've taken the words of Jesus and we've tried to make them work for our lives instead of working our lives around the words of Jesus. And so we take the golden rule, we like the golden rule, but we don't much enjoy the call to pick up our cross daily and follow him. It's a harder truth, and yet equally there. We affirm with our minds and our mouths that Jesus died for our sins, and at the same time deny that we are the actual cause of his death. We affirm it for other people, oh yeah, you sinners. But we have a hard time remembering that we are the cause. It was our sin that held him there. We don't read our Bibles anymore. We depend on a professional from a stage to read it for me, to tell me what to do as a result. And we, my friends, need a wake-up call, and that's what Pentecost is all about. Waking up the dead, empowering those that somehow denied its power, those that disciples were waiting in the upper room. They knew they could do nothing of consequence until the Holy Spirit would come. And so they went and they wait, and I pray that we would be a waiting people for the Holy Spirit to come. He has now come. Now what will we do? 
Because the world that we are creating through our apathy, through our willful ignorance, through our busyness is sobering. J. Mack Stiles says this in his book on evangelism, spreading the gospel. He says, if we don't practice healthy evangelism, the dominoes start to fall. Just look around. Just look at these words and think about, is this the culture that we live in? The focus of preaching and teaching turns into a living, a moral life, not a gospel-centered life. Non-Christians are lulled into thinking that they are okay in their lost state. Christians think that non-Christians are believers because they made a superficial outward commitment. There's no fruit to their lives. They've just said they're Christians. The church then baptizes those who are not believers, and the church allows non-Christians into membership. Eventually, non-Christians become leaders in the church, and a church becomes a subculture of nominalism. This is already happening in our mainline denominations, if you don't know that. This is already happening in Europe. What we find in Europe is we follow Europe. We're about a generation behind them. I think that gap is shrinking with the internet, with social media. Whatever's going on in Europe, surely we will follow. And they are in a post-Christian society. Therefore, we are entering into a post-Christian society. Get out of the Bible Belt and you'll figure it out. Go to Oregon. Go to Seattle. Go to Washington, D.C. or New York or Vermont or Boston where they've turned old churches into duplexes. Because we're a dying people. Fastest growing religion in America, Islam. The fastest growing people in America are the nuns. Those that have tasted a religious expression and said, no thanks. I don't identify with any of it. Friends, we are empowered for more. We are empowered for more than this. More than what our Christian experience has been, more than what pastors and preachers have told us about, we are empowered for more. So if you're here today, good news, you have been empowered for more. And it's more than just sitting and listening, although that's part of really what truly a Christian is about, especially in our culture. But if you're bored, if you're somehow just like, man, I want to get involved, don't think about a local church gathering. Think about what happens in Monday to Friday for you. That's where the magic happens, not in here. This is just a recalibration, a celebration of what we've seen God do all throughout the week so that we come together on Sunday mornings and go, oh man, I failed, I messed it up, but God is good. And then we need to be reminded of this good news. Not, boy, that nursery. I don't know if I can handle that nursery today. Well, that that song was a little off today. I don't like that song. Well, who's that guy preaching? I don't like him. Don't worry, you're fine. You're in good company. We are empowered for more, but what is it that we are empowered for? The first thing is this, we are empowered for mission. Acts 1.8 would say that we, are, we truly have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Pentecost is this fulfillment of Jesus, not just giving the great commission, but empowering us for mission. In the end of, cha- uh, of the book of Luke, the good doctor, the journalist Luke, wrote both the book of Luke and the book of Acts. At the end of Luke, Verse 24, it says this, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. But stay in the city, stay in Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. And then in Acts 1.8, that fulfillment of when that day happens, some 50 days later, you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what will that power do, Acts 1.8? It will empower you to be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
See, most of the Christian life is not a battle between good versus evil, friends. That's kind of been taken care of on the cross, and it is taken care of in our sanctification that we be kind of be made more like Jesus every day. That's the good versus evil. But more than that is this battle between good and great. Really, really good things in our lives, but the best thing in our life. So I hope and pray that we would kind of get beyond living for good things and start living for the best thing. Jesus and his good gospel. And I I think the American church is doing some really good things. There are more VBSs than you can count this summer. Go online and search for VBSs around around town. You'll find a place or 10 for your kid. If you want VBS, man, they're all over town. And go take care of it. Like, go... I think your kids should be exposed to the gospel, especially in different expressions of that. There are more expressions of kids camp throughout the city with Christmas and Easter. You see Christmas pageants and Good Friday and Monday Thursday and Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday and helicopter egg drops and elephants and donkeys and all that's really good. I'm not bashing on that. So I got to say that first before I'm about to say this. But most of what the church is doing is really, really good and not great. It's not the best. And so what do I mean by that? Are you equipped for the work of ministry? Are you equipped to be a missionary? Dare I say that most of us, before we came to the Grove and started the Grove, we didn't know that actually being a missionary was who we are in Christ. See, the Holy Spirit has empowered you to be witnesses the Greek word is martyr, missionary, to, be, to give up your life for the sake of the gospel. That wasn't just for them. That was for you and me. That's who we are in Christ. We don't have to attain that. We don't have to get mature enough to do that. And you'll find, and this is coming up in my next point, but you'll find that Peter, I mean, he's the least likely person to be the guy that preaches the good news. And yeah, that's exactly who God uses to bring 3,000 people into the fold of God. So if you know anything about this church, you know that we are at our core missional. We've scared some people off by that. My wife has actually gone up to new people in our church before on Sunday mornings and go, hey, just so you know, we're missional. And they go, I don't know what that means, but I'm not coming back. Out of the goodness of her heart. We've seen really committed leaders be a part of our church and then leave our church. And when I ask why, they would go, you're just really going to be committed to one thing, aren't you? Yes. And then I would ask, and I asked that person, what is the one thing that you see? Just tell me. And he goes, you're just going to make disciples. And you're leaving? And you're leaving because we're making disciples? See, this is how twisted we've become. Oh man, Lord, have mercy on us. But we believe that if we're going to go inward, it is really only for the sake that we would be outward. We would go inward to be in grace. And we go, how's this date? How's that date? Now, when I did this with my first neighbor that I did this with, they looked at me and they go, I'm not really a social person. No thanks. To which I said, I'm not a social person either. That's why it's taken me six years to invite you over for dinner. And they said, look, we're really not interested. And I said, all right, no problem. And I walked away and I tried to find somebody else to go ask. That may be your sign, okay? So don't push it. The last thing we need is more pushy Christians out there pushing an agenda. Instead, we're inviting them over, and when they come over, ask them their story. Ask them how they ended up in Houston. 
Ask them what their family is like, how they met their spouse, and don't interrupt with your story. Listen. Before you eat, pray for your food. Pray for God's blessings over your guests. Do distinctively Christian things. And as you eat dessert and drink coffee, ask them about their faith. And when that gets uncomfortable, and it will, lean in. And believe Jesus' words when he said Luke, in Luke 12, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. And so by August 1st, invite them over for dinner. Believe those words. There's so much uncertainty in this, y'all. And if they don't want to do it, move on to the next neighbor. Because the point is this. You have now offered your home for these people so that when something goes down in their life, they know that not only is your home open, your heart is open as well. You've taken the time to know their name, to follow up with them about things you care, they care about, not what you care about, what they care about. You've invited them into your life. And in a world that is built upon anonymity and persona, you have given them a name and a person they can call. And that may be worth it right there. And by September 1st, they've said, yes, you've met with them. You've fought the panic and the fear, of certainty and comfort. And all of a sudden, you have great encouragement because you've stepped out in faith for many of us. Invite a stranger into our home. And then we will get to share these stories amongst this people. So I'll be gone. But I'll be back before September 1st, and I'll be here to remind you of this great challenge for us. One family. One person that we will invite into our homes. Bring them to an understanding of the gospel and invite them to follow Jesus on one level or another. So, you single people right now are going, I can't do that, I'm single. You people that don't own a home right now are going, I don't have a house to be able to do that. Okay, team up with a, with a partner. If you're single, go get another single person and do it. If you have no house, find someone's house that you go, hey, you're doing this thing, this challenge, I want to join you. Can I join you? Yeah, I'd love to do this together. It'd be great. If you're an introvert, I get it. If you're afraid, I understand. But the last I saw, so was Peter. He was afraid. Jesus chose him, lifted him up, and empowered him to preach this sermon that continued to tell the leaders, you killed Jesus. You put him on the cross. And yet he was the fulfillment of all that was promised. No excuses, y'all. We down on this? All right, we're going to look for a better, a better commitment than that. Will you commit to inviting, don't just do it in lip service, truly, I don't want that. But will you commit yourself to doing one person, inviting one person over for dinner between now and September 1st? Pray that you would. That's the challenge before you today as a result of the Holy Spirit empowering you for much more. Let's pray.